One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's the morning after the morning after the night before and it would appear that America is in a right old mess after one of the great political comebacks of all time in the early hours live on our incredible election broadcast in the wee small hours. Donald Trump did exactly what I predicted that he would do. He declared victory and crowned himself the 46th President of the United States. Predictably, Trump's claim to more four more years in the White House has caused a cataclysmic reaction around the world from the mainstream media who were all predicting a Biden landslide. For their part, the Biden campaign reckon they're still in with a chance, even if they lose Pennsylvania, which looks increasingly likely. Constitutional experts are all aghast at Trump's claims that the Democrats are trying to hijack democracy, but his concern is all about postal vote fraud. And no one can honestly say if he's right or not. He's threatening to take everybody to the Supreme Court, and everybody knows how that's going to end. Trump says it's a fraud, he says it's an embarrassment, it's at least one of those things, and possibly both. We'll bring you all the developments as they happen throughout the night and throughout the day here on the home of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And we'll be talking to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, who has been, amongst many others, uh, in the front line of calling for political reform, not just of Britain, uh, but of the Western world altogether. 03444991000. Coming up later on, we'll be joined by archaeologist and TV presenter Neil Oliver with his take on what's happening in Washington. And we'll find out how Scotland is coping as England prepares for lockdown too. As ever, we want to hear from you as well apparently lots of people are going shopping today i mean why look out there look in the blue yonder the big blue yonder it's beautiful it's a lovely day go and spend some time outside the lockdown is coming tomorrow which means you might not be able to go out as much as you would like to don't for god's sake spend all of your time inside a shopping center what's the matter with you it's coming up to Prime Minister's questions later on, of course. Another chance to see Sir Keir Starmer having a go at Boris Johnson for not doing whatever he agrees with quickly enough. Charlotte Ivers, our political correspondent, will be in the house. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. And now, with an even more brilliant spanking new studio, it is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. I have to say, even I am sometimes taken aback at my political nous and savvy. I alone, uh, not the BBC, not Sky Television, not ITV, not CNN, not CNBC, not CBS, not any of the other networks around the world covering the American election to put the 46th president of the United States into the White House said these words. The words that I said yesterday, all day, Donald Trump 
mark my words, will declare himself the winner of the presidential election before the morning has arrived in this country properly. And it will all be disputed. Everyone will say that he hasn't won. And that will be the beginning of a massive dogfight. Hard to believe that I'm the only one who saw that coming. Let's talk to William Closton, leader of the Social Democratic Party, to see what he makes of it all. William, a very good morning. Morning. Great to be back. Nice to see you, William. Um, this tells me that there's quite a lot wrong with the political system in America. Um, how do you see it playing out? Well, the first thing that needs to be noted is the failure of the polling industry. Yeah. Because uh, they have absolutely mis got this completely and utterly wrong. I mean, the, the, I saw polls on the eve of this that gave Biden... I mean, obviously, the popular vote's different from the Electoral College, but I saw, you know, polls 9%, uh, nine, you know, 9% leads, things yeah. like that. And I mean, it was this... double digits in some places, wasn't it? Yeah, it's astonishing. And yet again, I mean, one of the rules since... I was chatting to Rod a little about this yesterday on the phone and had to call it, and it was very difficult to call. Like, both of us thought it'd be much closer than that. And so it's proved. So since since 2015, pretty much every single election in the West has dramatically underestimated the sort of populist element of the vote, right. the sort of non-progressive element of the vote. And they've done it again and again and again. They've done it you know, in this election. No difference. Um, so something's clearly happening. I mean, perhaps, Mike, a lot of clever people should have a look at their models which doesn't just apply to this. Well, do you know, funny you should say that, because I was going to get onto the lockdown modelling a little bit later on in this conversation, but it's an extraordinary thing that's happened. I saw it coming. Nobody else did, which surprises me even more. Uh, you know you know how reluctant I am to blow my own trumpet, William, but I'm just going to keep doing oh, yeah. it, uh, because I did say that this would happen. Um, and I can't believe that the Democrats have allowed themselves, in a way, to get into this situation. Well, um, progressives... Uh, all again, all over the Western world, seem to be slow learners, don't they? Uh, the basic lesson that they haven't learned, they can't learn, is that you can't despise your country and then get that country to vote for you. Yeah? Right. So if they, if they don't understand that, they'll continue to lose elections and get very angry about it. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the whole... There's lots of interweaving things here, but I, the, I think the fundamental thing is a political rotation of formerly uh, Democrat voters. I mean, look, the county that Youngstown is in, yeah, you know, the old steel town, that, that voted for Trump, you know, and, that, and Democrats have got to have a look at that. Mm. So why can't they get those previously traditional Democrat voters back? Um, lots of reasons, but, but disliking the country. And I don't blame Biden. I think he's a, he's a, he's a decent chap, but uh, obviously too old and not a brilliant candidate. Yeah. But some well, not everybody, but, not everybody <laughs> agrees. I mean, a lot of people say he's a decent chap, but there's an awful lot of things about Joe Biden uh, that don't bear an awful lot of scrutiny. And I think Trump is right to say that this is a man yeah. who has spent his entire life inside the beltway of Washington, D.C. Um, and I would go along with Trump's uh, questions about his wealth and how he got from being a sort of 150,000 dollar a year senator to a multi multi-millionaire with homes all over the world and sons that work in very obscure and unusual oil businesses uh, abroad yeah i get that mike but i, I don't <clears throat> that, i'm making a broader point i mean i think the people that really let the democrats down as a team are the uh, are the people that are associated with them um on, on on the further to the left who clearly don't like the country and you know so you've got all that and the wave of blm protests and they're asking voters basically to vote Democrat. Uh, you know, if you were in Portland, would you vote Democrat? Uh, you know, I would what? not. No, I mean that, that's the thing. And so there's a, there's a problem basically. They they haven't got they've dis they've detached from their core vote that they used to have, um, industrial workers. 
partly because the, the industries that those workers uh, used to work in is gone. And that, you know, and again, right across the West, people have to do a little bit of thinking. Mm. Um, those industrial wages used to support families. And instead of that, in the Rust Belt, you've got large scale, you know, deaths of despair and an opioid epidemic. And they're still asking people to vote for them. And, and I understand people's reaction. I mean, I don't think I'm not a big fan of Trump, but I understand people voting for something else, uh, given that choice. Mm. Also, I think people have generally, genuinely fed up with social engineering that comes from the left, which has been going on in this country as well as it has in America. And people are sick to the back teeth of being told what to say, what to think, when to say it, uh, and how to be nice to everybody, when in fact the people who are not being nice are the ones who are trying to destroy everything that we've spent hundreds of years building up. Yeah, and, and how sweet the revenge is in the ballot, uh, you know, in, in the privacy of the, of, of the polling. Mm. That's, that's what they don't get. And I think that's what the pol- pollsters don't understand. And, and this, this what well, they used to call it a shy Tory effect or whatever, hmm. um, it's happening everywhere because the what what gets said by the mainstream media is controlled by about ten percent of the population. Yeah, a good half of the population really aren't on that page, and, yeah. and they've got nowhere to go. So actually, you force people in the end to just 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 vote. I mean, that's the that's the only weapon hmm. they've got. And I was watching the BBC this morning, Andrew Neil doing his final show, um, a great broadcaster, always has been, always will be. Um, but his co-host, um, a woman who I didn't recognise, I'm not sure who she is, um, was quizzing somebody about the whole business of, um, of Donald Trump and his actions currently and what he's doing. And the amount of sort of ludicrous arrogance with which some of these broadcasters operate, talking as if they somehow are the givers and takers of all freedoms in the world, you know, and that surely he should be acting in a more presidential manner and surely this is not what he should be doing. And it's like, well, excuse yeah. me, what's it got to do with you? You know, she's all kind of outraged and in some way sort of standing up in arms to uh, to the president of the free world who has been elected to run that country uh, because apparently she doesn't like the way he operates. Yeah, I mean, that, you, you can see it in the body language, actually, Mike. Yeah. I mean, throughout, you, you know, they, 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 they're, they're so upset when they don't get their own way and the sense of entitlement is yeah. astonishing. Right. I mean, as you know, I've, you know, sort of tried to argue you know, for the BBC being redeemable and savable, uh, you know, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's very, very difficult. I think um, they they show levels of bias increasingly, which uh, is, is hard to take. Yeah, know, no, it's ex- exactly, absolutely extraordinary. Let's move on to uh, the other big story of the day, which is, of course, the vote today in the House of Commons. We've got Prime Minister's questions first. Uh, we've then got a load of Conservative Party MPs who don't want to lock the country down, but are going to vote to do it anyway. Yeah, um, obviously this is going to go through, and, and and from a sort of narrow, short-term political perspective, you can see what Starmer was trying to do. He's he's banked on um, the experts advising this, uh, and so he's advised that you know you should go for another lockdown. Uh, and sure enough, it comes along, and, and and the government cave into it. But now there is a breach in the Conservative Party, isn't there? I mean, it's not just red wall voters; it's people like De- Desmond Swain and others who are. They're not going to put up with this, hmm. uh, but they, they're, they're a minority, and this 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 lockdown will happen anyway. I mean, from the start, they've been locking down on uh, fairly flaky uh, uh, footings, actually legally. Um, so, but I'm, I've no doubt this this vote will go through. But as I said before, it's a mistake. What the government haven't done from the very very start is create any uh, policy stability at all. Hmm. So they've they've literally stop go uh, sharp turns from the very start uh, and it, and it's 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 soul destroying actually to to look at retailers and other people in business who've done everything they've been asked to do 
absolutely everything they've been at. They put the screens up. They've made their premises COVID safe. They've yeah. worked very hard, and they were weakened by the previous lockdown, which I supported. I mean, I, I think that was that was a rational. Uh, I, mean, I think um, most people did, William. Yeah, yeah, but not not successive lockdowns. I, I just think it's it's a terrible policy, and uh, you know, they, they, if if you if you wanted to seed uncertainty. Uh, this is pretty much the best way to go about it. And also, um, there's never really been a definitive exit plan. Um, and lots of people have been demanding that. Uh, John Redwood was talking to us yesterday about that. And the fact is, is that, for example, in Wales, uh, Mark Drakeford will lift the uh, the two-week lockdown, the fire break, as he called it, next week. But he wasn't in a position, and, and neither is this government, as far as I can see, um, giving any kind of um, sort of strategic plan for what would be termed a success, you know, what will we, what will he tell us, and what will he tell the people of Wales when they come out of the of the fire break lockdown? Will he say, well, the reason we did it was for this reason, and because we've achieved this, and we can call it a success? Nobody's ever having those conversations. No, I mean, it's it's, it's an, yet another weakness in the strategy, and you can't, yeah, you know, calling things fire breaks and things doesn't get around the fact no. that they're locked. I mean, for me, I'm calling it lockdown one, right, and lockdown two. Yeah, I mean, I think what will inevitably happen is that the the pressure to unlock for christmas will be will be significant i think they'll probably unlock to some extent possibly when they they say you know very in the first week of december but possibly a little bit later give retailers a little bit of a chance then people will convene at christmas uh and then the committee will say uh the r is well above one again mm. so we lock down again in 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 january and i can't see in, you know, with the viral, with the, with the seasonality of this, I can't see any hope with the government's stance that you wouldn't have a lockdown until mid-March. No. I mean, it's like the okey-cokey the are, right, isn't it? I mean, as soon as you open up um, the schools and you open up universities and you open up restaurants, the R rate goes up before anybody's even gone anywhere, you know, because it's one of those statistical models and that's how it works. But when you see um, Chief Scientific Advisor Sir Patrick Vallance actually admitting for the second time in as many months that he used update figures to terrify the people of this country. I mean, how can this guy still be in a job? Well, it's weird. I mean, the, the, I, one, of, one of our party members is a, a senior uh, lecturer at one of the northern universities, and he said he was looking at that uh, press conference and said, you know, if I wanted to really um, baffle a lecture theatre full of students, what I would do is successively bombard them with lots and lots of graphs mm. without headings you know, that's a pretty good method of doing so right as i say i, I think and, and i've said this before mike an obvious error in in the government's approach is not to have a parallel committee fraser nelson put a quite a good piece in the spectator on the weekend about about covid yeah uh, he made the point that there is no parallel committee to look at the collateral costs of lockdown so mm. what the government are doing from and they've done this from the start is they've got half the advice so you listen to nerve tag and sage fine Perfectly reasonable. Listen to those. But where is the committee advising the government on the macro cumulative collateral costs to health, welfare and the economy of the suppression measures? And mm. there isn't. You don't have that. Literally, you're making policy in the dark. Yeah. 
Well, not only making policy in the dark, but not really being responsible for that policy, not really being held to account, because regardless of uh, what Sir Keir Starmer may be doing now, uh, claiming that, you know, they should have done what he said they should have done two weeks ago, but now he agrees with what they're doing, but they should have done it before. You know, the fact that they're not really being held to account in Parliament, they're not really being held to account mostly by the press. Um, and instead, what they're doing is saying, well, if you disagree with us, you must be one of those evil people that wants to see all old people dying. Yeah, that's true. Um, they're not being, I mean, we don't have an opposition uh, apart from small parties like ours. Um, you know, I, mean, I think we're the only party pretty much that has an official policy with the objections to this, these measures. But um, Well, now Nigel what... Farage says he's going to occupy the same territory as you guys. Yeah, he did. Yeah, but to be fair to him, he wasn't saying that in the summer. He's saying the opposite. <laughs> but well, anyway, he's saying it now. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, well, I'll let people make their own minds up about that. Right. I mean, consistency, if you're a serious political party, you need to be consistent about what your approach is and think about it, not just jump on bandwagons. But you know, leave that aside. The the point is that the what's happening is the opposition is actually the public. And again, to go back to polling, I don't know where they get these polls on public support for lockdown. I really don't know where I, that's coming from. I must be in a bubble. I mean, I, honestly, I mean, I, you know, but and yet I'm not. I speak to people all over the country mm. constantly. Uh, and, you know, not just SDP members, but many, many other people. And I think the opposition in the end is, is, is basically the people who... Uh, the really sad thing about this, Mike, is that at the start, do you remember, if you go back to, um, go back to March, April, the level of, of, of public solidarity was very, very high. Mm. And it was, it, was an, it was a good feeling. I mean, everyone was behind the government's approach. Uh, we're all in it together. Um, you know, a lot of people were organizing community uh, volunteer groups and so on. And you know, all of that, um, not all of it, but a lot of that solidarity, the sense of solidarity and unity has been shredded. Mm. And I think it's been shredded because the basically the government had no basic confidence in the public's ability to be sensible no. and, to, and to abide by the five sensible protocols, which you you, you know are going to be here pretty much in perpetuity. But to make them mandatory and and to have these draconian lockdowns, I think is just mistaken. It doesn't yeah. give the. I mean, they've asked credit. they've asked for us to trust them, but they haven't trusted us. Is the bottom line yeah. for me? And also, they haven't really earned the trust of the people because they've misled the people. They haven't been transparent. They've given them uh, data which has been doctored. Uh, no, I'm not calling them liars. I'm not calling them dis dishonest. But what I am saying uh, is that they have, shall we say, been economical with the actuality, which is not obviously my original words. But you know what I mean? They haven't told us the truth and the whole no, truth. Yeah, there's a sense. I mean, it just I mean, it, it, I, you know, obviously Boris Johnson personally has had a terrible time. And, and you know, it, it is a major, major challenge. But if you go. I mean, I don't keep these. I don't keep these press conferences, on, on, you know, on file. But the, if you listen to what Johnson was saying very early on, certainly in March, April, you know, he was saying to the public, "We'll have this cracked," and in his usual way, um, you know, being being slightly over optimistic uh, about what he could achieve. But you, you know, in reality, I just wish people would be sensible. I think the public get this. Mm. This 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 virus is endemic now. It's not going to just be magicked away. And, uh, you know, as far as a, 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 an end game is concerned, I mean, if the end game is, is, is um, a vaccine, you've got a major problem because, I, I, you know, again, I, I've looked at polls and I, you've got to be sceptical, but there's a very, very large slice of the public are not really willing to, to have a vaccine. No. And yet, parliament, you know, parliamentary committees have taken evidence from lawyers on compulsory va vaccination, which I find horrifying. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, again, having done that, expecting nobody to discover that that's what they've been doing, you know? And I mean, whether or not uh, they've ever got an idea of actually wishing to bring that into play, you do worry about the sort of scientific mind that goes, well, look, they've accepted lockdown, so let's just uh, decide to inject them without their their consent. Really? Who are these people? Yeah, I just don't think it's going to work. I mean, apart from anything, I mean, again, these policymakers must be living in a bubble. Well, they're not going to inject me without my permission, I can tell you that. Exactly. So the resistance to it in reality uh, is going to be very, very high. I mm. mean, you know, and I'm not an I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I think, you know, vaccine could and should, you know, in the end might be very, very useful. But uh, yeah, I, but I, know I, prefer, of- I prefer not to have it uh, administered to me uh, without me not knowing about it. Oh, I mean, that's the whole idea of that is horrific. And the, the idea of compulsory vaccination, I think, is, is, is very, very serious. Mm. in the You've got to be, you know, I mean, if you were a young person, Mike, You've got. You would ask yourself, you know, given the given the risk to you of, of COVID, what's what's the higher risk? Yeah, in, uh, taking a, 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 a vaccine that's just been developed very quickly, or um, or getting the actual disease. So I, I think they have to be careful about that. But if oh, that's, that's also the, if I was if I was a young person, I have young children, teenagers, uh, kids in their twenties. You know, they're I presume wandering about, wondering when this is all going to end, because for their adult lifetime, this has been quite a long time. This has been going on. Yeah, I mean, no, but it just just in terms of the the long term scarring, all the evidence is if we if you know, and again, it's something the SDP has pointed out from the start. They this idea that you can switch the economy and society off like a light switch. It's a very very detailed. It's a very complex ecosystem. Yeah. This, and you can't just switch it back on. It's not like a toy train set. Um, and 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 we've we've said you know you the government is risking a prolonged economic depression if that happens. That scars the opportunities and life chances of a generation forever. Mm. I mean, all the evidence is in on that, I'm afraid. It's not to say that people within that generation won't do very well. Many of them will. But, you know, if you lock doors, if, if doors don't open, if opportunities don't present themselves to a whole cohort of young people, uh, all the evidence is that it, that it lasts right until retirement. They don't get started. So, again, I just wish the government were capable of taking a broader view understanding this is endemic and, and putting in some policy stability so we could all plan and live reasonably normal lives. A plan. Now, that's a good idea. I'd vote for that. William Clouston, thank you very much indeed. Leader of the Social Democrat Party. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's talk to Sakib Bharti, MBE, Conservative MP for Meriden, former president of the Greater Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. The big story outside of America, of course, uh, is the lockdown. It's coming tomorrow. Um, this is the last chance you've got to go out for a drink for a month. This is the last chance you've got to go out for a meal for a month. This is the last chance many people have got to do any Christmas shopping, because some people think the Christmas shopping won't be possible to do in December either. Sakib, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, not at all. Um, Looking at some of the coverage this morning in the papers of what was being said yesterday uh, at the uh, committee of of MPs who were asking for evidence of what economic damage the lockdown is likely to do, uh, we're pretty surprised, I think, by what Robert Jenrick had to say, um, that nobody's really looked into it, Sakeem. I mean, a lot of my listeners are concerned that this lockdown uh, is not going to work concerned that it may not stop when it's meant to on December the 2nd, and are concerned that it's going to do far more harm than good. Well, Mike, I mean, every member of parliament uh, at the moment is going through 
this process of trying to figure out what I mean, so many will have decided I've decided that I'm going to be supporting the lockdown. But um, obviously, the, the, we've been back and forth. It was a difficult decision for me as well. And I, I think what swung it for me really was uh, the data on uh, surge capacity, uh, which says that if we don't do anything, uh, the risk we have is the NHS being overwhelmed. And I'm not going to give you uh, the, you know, the, the party line, so to speak on this. But what I will say is this, that I, the, the uh, conclusion I came to was actually how difficult this will be if we are having to turn away non-COVID patients in four uh, to five weeks time. I completely uh, accept that we, throughout this process, we knew the, um, uh, the economic impact of the first lockdown, and we're obviously seeing that. Um, but I know that the Prime Minister would not be doing this if this was not absolutely necessary. And I think every member of Parliament uh, will be, certainly on our side, will be grappling with this uh, conundrum that we've got at the moment. But how can you say that the evidence that you're basing your decision on uh, is that it may well be that we end up having uh, uh, an overrun NHS when even Sir Patrick Vallance yesterday admitted that his data was wrong and that it was used to scare people? Well, look, I, I, I didn't uh, see what uh, Patrick Valance said, but I, I, I obviously have been following... Uh, well, it's in the Daily the, Mail, uh, Sakeem. Do you want me to read it to you? Well, you, you can do if you want. I mean, I, I have to admit, I didn't see that. But what I will say, uh, to answer your question uh, directly, um, look, clearly, I mean, I, I in my patch in Meriden, we were in a tier two uh, restriction. We were. It looked like we were about to go into tier three. The tier two restrictions were working because actually what we saw was the rate of growth was slowing down. Um, uh, while the other tier ones were uh, catching up. And so I know, I know certainly from my experience on the ground, though, however, uh, that clearly uh, the, the, this virus is rampant, it's uh, contagious, and it's very, very stubborn. And actually, uh, the, the real risk here is having got briefings from the hospitals as well, was actually that they, they, would, they would be in this situation uh, where they'd have to start making some really tough decisions. And I think for the first time in my life, uh, and I'm sure certainly for the first time in your life as well, that the, the NHS uh, would have to make these really tough decisions about who to turn away. And um, so I, I think, you know, of course, in government, we, you have to be able to... Well, it wouldn't uh, be actually for the first time in my life because I was told that this would be the case in March uh, when we were told that we would have to lock down in March. And everybody, I think, as, uh, and me as well, went along with it because we trusted the government and we trusted the scientists. I don't think that's now the case because we don't trust the government in the same way and we don't trust the scientists in the same way because they've now admitted twice within the last two months that they have used exaggerated figures, exaggerated models, scary numbers to make people behave. Well, look, Mike, the, the fact of the matter is uh, we were in this situation uh, in March and actually the measures we took obviously worked and it got, it got the virus under control. Um, we always knew there was a prospect of a second wave, which, by the way, uh, the rest of the world, you know, major countries in Europe are also experiencing. Uh, so I, I would probably be a bit more challenging on that because actually, you know, what we also know, there is a plethora of uh, evidence in the scientific uh, community. We see uh, different um, uh, opinions. I know from my life, uh, life in business, you know, different experts would say different things, but then you have to make a judgment. And I, I certainly don't envy the prime minister because he's having to balance this uh, conundrum of the economic crisis and the economic issues. Uh, aspects of lockdown but also the public health crisis and the other thing i'd say uh, mike as well i mean i i think speaking to uh, many people from the public etc 
I think there is uh, there is an understanding that this needs to be uh, take get got, gotten under control, mainly because people probably are quite fed up. And actually, we want to see the back of this, and we want to go into twenty twenty one in a much more optimistic vein. And uh, well, you, I think you know, I think that's I think that's all true, and I think that is perfectly reasonable, Saki. But I think that if you are going to persuade the the country and to try to take the people of this country with you, I think you have to at the very least do some kind of economic uh, model based on the damage that this is likely to cause, so that you can say, well, we've looked at that uh, and we have accepted that there will be some damage and this is the way that we're going to deal with that and this is how we're going to finance those people who need help and this is how we're going to get through it but to say as Robert Jenrick did that there was no real financial assessment made does not exactly encourage people to go along with it and secondly what we also don't know is what is the target here you know how will we know that this lockdown that's coming for a month is going to be a success well, I, well, again, I'd be challenging on certainly on the last point, first of all, because um, I, I think the target is to make sure that the National Health Service isn't overwhelmed. And we will know that that is the case when, uh, you know, in four weeks time that that is not happening. But of course, actually, Mike, you know, we know that we have to try and get the RA under control. And certainly in my constituency, we knew that household to household transmission was a key factor. We knew we know that the, some of the data is indicating that over 60s. Uh, it is, uh, although it's uh, prevalent amongst all age groups, it's certainly rising quite fast in the over 60 uh, age group as well. Um, and uh, that is the data that we will be looking at as it yeah. comes in. And, but there is, there is, analyze. I mean, you're quite right, Saqib. There is a lot of data suggesting that household transmission is one of the biggest problems. So why are you telling everybody to sit at home with each other where they can transmit the virus worse than if they're actually out in restaurants which are properly uh, policed for COVID, in bars which are properly policed for COVID, where there's a very small likelihood of the transmission actually happening well no, Mike, i would actually say what we're saying to people is not to do household to household mixing uh because obviously that is exactly what will um well that's what the environment and the conditions of the virus will spread in and we're obviously in this stage now where it is so stubborn and it is spreading so fast that we're a, a much tougher uh measure is having uh having uh we're having to take and uh, take on board but look the fact of the matter is none of us wanted to be here i don't think the prime minister wanted to be here uh, certainly i didn't want to be here uh, but uh, ultimately, the decision has to be made that you have to obviously hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Yes, frankly, but hoping the, for the, the best uh, the is not—it's not a great policy, is it? Hoping for the best. Well, well, no. What I'm saying is that's that's always the motivation that we all have. But at the same time, what we—the policy—is to make sure that we get the uh, rate of infection under control, which is absolutely appropriate to try and get the R rate under one to make sure that we are certainly into Christmas. And I asked this question uh, in the House, by the way, uh, a couple of days ago when uh, the Prime Minister was giving his statement, which is, will we see some sort of a normal Christmas? Because actually a lot of people, like you said in your intro, are worried about that, what December's going to look like. And the Prime Minister was absolutely unequivocally um, determined. And he said on December the 2nd, as the legislation will say today, is that the this uh, form of the lockdown will certainly end. We may still have some sort of tiered uh, structure afterwards and we will have to deal with that. But actually, um, we know that once the virus is under some sort of manageable control, plus with the uh, increased testing that we've got in Liverpool, plus with the uh, track and trace system, uh, you know, obviously starting to work a bit more efficiently. And that's, that's I didn't realise it was starting to work. That's news to me. When did it start working? Well, well, look, obviously, I know the track and trace system has had a significant amount of criticism as well. And, you know, <laughs> I think that would go maybe down as the understatement of the year. I'm not going to blame you but, for that, Saqib. I know it's not your problem. However, I mean, the track and trace system doesn't track or trace. So apart from but, that, it's a great I will success. Say, but, no, but, but what I will say on that, Mike, is, uh, you know, I, I take your point. But actually, what I've seen is locally, certainly, uh, it's been working a lot more uh, efficiently over the last few weeks. Um, but frankly, you have to have the R8 
under control. You have to have the virus uh, under, under some degree of control, right? Because we know it is very, very stubborn, It is uh, as we're seeing across Europe. Um, and then there, we have then the environment and the combination of uh, factors to try and manage this uh, come December. And so I'm certainly, for my constituents, I'm very, very concerned uh, that, you know, we get out of this by December the 2nd, as the legislation will say, and then we try and give people some sort of normality because it has been a, a dreadfully difficult year. Uh, and I think the people of uh, Britain deserve this. But you know as well as I do, Saki, because we've all become more expert in epidemiology than we probably ever thought we would be. Um, as soon as you lift this lockdown, the R rate will go up because that's the nature of the R rate. Well, uh, Mike, I'll probably say to you, I'm probably the only uh, person, uh, certainly I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I, I still uh, uh, you know, take the, the advice as it comes. But I think you're right, look. The, um, as you start to you lessen restrictions and you loosen measures, of course the needle starts to move and you see that, which is why the government has to take the really difficult decisions. It has to be able to decide if we do X, Y and Z, what will, ha what will happen to the RA and the infection? And at every point of that point, there are decisions that have to be made. As, uh, as we always say, advisors advise and ministers decide. And that's exactly what has to happen. And so I completely accept that. But then we all have to accept that that will be the case. We may not agree with every part of that decision. Uh, and we may, we're absolutely right to question the logic and see what we can do. But frankly, right now, we know that the surge capacity is at a place where it's quite preca precarious for the NHS. And we've seen, I've seen some stats today um, uh, and some reports about, you know, hospital figures going up and admissions going up. We just don't want to be in a place where, uh, you know, certainly in December, we're turning away non-COVID patients, because I think that would be quite catastrophic. Yeah, well, of course it would. But it's a, an argument that nobody can really argue with, because it's a possibility that something could happen in the future, which we can't really speculate about. So it makes it very difficult to argue against. However, uh, what I think we ought to be telling Messrs Valence and Witty is please do not treat us like idiots. Please do not present data uh, to frighten people. Please do not present data uh, which minimises... Um, the things that are going well and maximises the things that are going badly. Please do not present graphs which have got huge chunks missing because actually there's nothing wrong in certain parts of the country and there's no COVID patients in certain hospitals. You know, we want to be told the truth and we want to be being be treated like grown-ups. And I think that would be uh, me speaking for an awful lot of people in this country. Well, look, I, I, I definitely can't disagree with you in terms of being treated like grown-ups. But what I will say is this, and certainly on the argument around certain hospitals not uh, uh, having COVID patients, uh, my view is actually it's a matter of time uh, because we've seen, for example, you know, as we've seen France and Germany, as the wave starts to increase, it's a matter of time before COVID uh, starts to spread to these areas. And that's exactly why. Um, uh, and that's exactly why we have to start to take measures. And that's exactly why the modelling basically takes that into account. So uh, I'd probably disagree with you. I, I, I think the, uh, the, the, you know, and I go back to that uh, the concept. Of the well, you can't disagree capacity. with me about the, 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 the scientists being dis dishonest with us because they've admitted it. Well, no, I, I, the, the, the data I go back to is around surge capacity, Mike. And this is, this is a, re a really, really crucial point. And I know um, a, a lot of members uh, you know, on my side of the house will be uh, looking uh, at this uh, and will be understanding this. But surge capacity basically will exactly be that point that I keep making, which is the risk that we may be going into a position where we will be turning away non-COVID patients. And that's what we have to uh, try and protect and uh, prevent. Yeah, absolutely right. And you're going to make that argument, and I accept it. However, I'm not sure that I believe it. Sakeem, thank you very much indeed. Sakeem Barty, MBE, Conservative MP for Meriden, former President of the Grace of Birmingham Chambers of Commerce. He's voting with the government to lock down this evening uh, in Parliament. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Time to say a very good morning to Neil Oliver. I missed you last week, Neil, because I was away uh, getting a bit of half-term R&R on the Isle of Wight. Uh, sorry to say that Jeremy Corbyn seems to have followed in my footsteps, so uh, we'll see how that uh, turns out. But but welcome back. Um, how are things? Hello, uh, Mike. Nice to see you back. Uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, good, good. I have to be positive. Um, no, I'm refusing to, uh, to, to to go under any further than I was under, and I'm now... Just trying to be upbeat about all things uh, in the face of all the chaos around us. Yes, well, when you look at what's going on in America, actually, we can take a little bit of comfort that we're not quite as chaotic uh, in our political system as they are. I, yeah, I, I suppose I'm, I'm old enough. I've lived through enough um, American elections and UK elections. And, uh, but it does seem to be uh, deteriorating in terms of a spectacle that you would want to watch. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the very idea, you know, I, I will always maintain until, you know, much later that America is the best single idea for a, a nation that anybody ever had. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I completely approve of their constitution and the, and the, the ambition of the United States and, the, and that increasingly it's not being made manifest is, is very depressing because I always think of America as a, as a hopeful, yes. as a, a great hope for humanity. Mm. Uh, if, if we're now in, a, in territory where even the Americans can't smoothly conduct, uh, you know, the regular general election uh, to establish their leader for the next four or five years, uh, then what hope for anybody else? Uh, I, I, further, furthermore, I think in the way that has happened already, say in in, in Britain. Uh, in terms of the, the Brexit referendum and then the last general election here, it, it's increasingly becoming the case that the other side, of, of whatever side you are on, are no longer just the opposition. They are the enemy. Mm. Are to be treated as the enemy in terms of the language that's used. Uh, and then I, I always ask, well, what hope for the victors of any election? Because in, increasingly elections are close-run things now. And if a, if a winning party has to then move on... Uh, with the idea that maybe as much as nearly half of the population are the enemy, mm. the enemy within, how how then do you get anything done? Yes. How do we get anything done in our country when so many people are characterised as the wrong kind of people and the enemy within? And likewise in America, what hope for a society to get things done, to move forward constructively, if they're talking about each other as the enemy? Mm. And I've always worried about America. I mean, when I moved there in 1983... Um, I was moving from a Britain that was kind of coming out of um, the 70s. Uh, it was the beginning of Thatcher's first part, first few years of a reign. And it was not in a great place, you know. Uh, the economy was in the toilet. There weren't very, very many jobs. One of the reasons I went to America. And I went to America and it was the Reagan era. And it was that shining sepulchre on the hill that Ronald Reagan talked about. And it was a land of opportunity. And London and Britain became that same land of opportunity in the 80s. But, you know, America then seemed to me to have everything right that Britain had got wrong. It seemed to me to be a place where, you know, there was more technology there was more opportunity and there was more wealth and ability to make money and to make a life for yourself but now it seems as though we've sort of gone and overtaken them and we've now become far more technologically adept Britain has become slightly more in the forefront of, of science perhaps than America and I've always worried that the, too many lawyers have clogged up America's um, political system and they've all now found excuses for why we haven't lost if you know what I mean is I, I agree that I, I fear for, I think lots of people are fearful for and about America and, and what will happen to America in the future. 
I grew up like everybody of my generation. What my only idea of America was that which I had had from the movies and, and television series. Yeah. And it wasn't really until I was in my thirties and my forties that I actually had the opportunity to see much of America. Mm. And when I did, and I've, you know, I, I was I was in the southern states of America in in the in the summer before the the twenty sixteen election, and I was I was shocked by the by the state of of towns and villages yeah. that I was seeing. In those areas, you know, the infrastructure was was well was subpar to say the least. Uh, there was a lot of uh, anger, a lot of anxiety. It wasn't a happy place, and I was struck by how the the real America that I was seeing was not at all the America that I had seen portrayed mm. in the movie. And right. it, also, like everybody else in the run up to the twenty sixteen election, um, the, the majority of the media and the pollsters had been predicting the win for Hillary Clinton. And I was speaking to people down there in, in Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee and the Carolinas, and they were all saying, absolutely not, Trump's going to win. And mm. I, was, I was shocked and stunned yeah. because it, it was at such variance with what I had been hearing before I came out to America. Mm. And sure enough, I went home, said this to people, and yeah, and then you know the election unfolded and, and indeed Trump won. And I think uh, what the, the America that we think we know, I think the America that, that most Brits maybe think they know, it doesn't exist uh, you, you know, we're familiar with those uh, the, the eastern seaboard and the western seaboard and those, and those big, you know, California and New York and all the rest of it. And when you actually get the opportunity to go into the United States of America, you're confronted with the reality that in many ways it's many different countries. Yeah. And there's an enormous range of people and there's an enormous range of, of opinion, uh, so much so that it's dizzying and disorientating. It's so different, is it, from the version of America that we need to get here. And uh, I, I, I very much... Uh, yes, that we, we do. I think in many ways we, we seem to have taken a step ahead of, of America technologically and, and in certain ways. But I fear for America because the world needs an America, or at the very least, it's the idea of an America, yeah. the idea that we've always had of America. And that seems to be disappearing almost like a mirage. I think that's right, because you've spoken before, Neil, about how it doesn't take very much for, you know, kind of instability and dissatisfaction to turn into something a lot darker. And we were seeing last night already uh, crowds gathering outside the White House, uh, instances of people getting into sort of shoving matches and shouting at one another. Um, and I do worry that that is going to be something we see more and more of as this kind of stalemate continues and maybe leads to some kind of battle royal in the Supreme Court. It almost feels here uh, in Europe and, and in America, I, th I think it's fair to say that there's a feeling that people have are beginning to treat democracy with contempt. Mm almost as though too many people uh, are now thinking that what we have, what we've, what we've had and the way we've, we've done things in the past is, is no longer to be treated with respect and, in fact, is to be treated with contempt. And that's a, that's a very dangerous cocktail because that can be manipulated by bad actors, uh, you know, who want to channel that feeling of discontent because uh, bad actors and, and, and political movements and ideologies can take advantage of that kind of feeling of, of unrest and, and contempt for the status quo, such that people begin to say, well, anything would be better than what we've got. Mm. And just change for the sake of change would be an improvement. Uh, but, but the reality is that the, the options, the, the choices that are, that are other than what we have had are not good. And the, and the rest of the world for most of history has been a hellish place for most people. And this, you know, we've said it before, you know, what we've had in, in Britain and, and what has been there in America for, for a relatively brief period in, in the scale of, of humankind 
uh, it, it's so fragile. And if people lose it, they won't necessarily, too many people won't see what they've lost until it's gone. Mm. And I, I just, I look on at America and I just, my heart breaks for it. It's supposed to be the, you know, the land of the free. It's supposed to be about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is such a noble aspiration, even though it hasn't been properly fulfilled yet. It, it, it's something that's so worth reaching for. Uh, and if people, if people uh, take, treat with contempt what we have and just want change so that they can have the, 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 the excitement of a revolution and, this, you know, and a so-called reset, uh, then I, I do fear I do fear for the future. And what, what happens in America, if a country like the United States of America can't uh, smoothly conduct its elections and, and establish who it wants to lead for the next four years, then what hope is there for the rest of us? No, quite. And my last guest on the, on the overnight show uh, was a former aide to Joe Biden who had fought on behalf of Hillary Clinton and Al Gore, and he was kind of third-time loser last night as I was talking to him. But he was an interesting character, I thought, which kind of delineates what's going wrong because he talks about Donald Trump being a purveyor of hate and somebody who hated everybody else and that, that he didn't agree with me that the left should not fight back against him. You know, and in the light of this hate crime bill in Scotland and, and what the Law Commission is looking at now down here in, in England as well, um, the definition of hate now seems to be something that the left is going to tell you about. It doesn't seem to be that the definition of hate is in any way um, open to, um, shall we say, any kind of argument or any kind of debate. You know, they're going to tell you what hate speech is and you're going to have to make sure that you don't make it, otherwise you're going to end up in prison. Hate is such a powerful word to be using in, that, in, in a legal context. Uh, you know, to have where laws are being drafted and written and bills are being passed through parliaments, mm. I think hate... Uh, is the wrong word to be using. Uh, and there's always the possibility of drifting as well into one-party states. Yeah. And if, if you're a one-party state and that, that's, that unchallenged, unopposed state is able to define what is hate and who is doing the hating and yeah. who is doing the setting up of hatred, yes. that's, that's so terrifyingly dangerous uh, you know, for so long, when the hate crime bill was was just at the proposal stage here in Scotland, uh, it was being opposed across the board by the police, by spokesmen for the legal profession, by all sorts of people, by the creative industries, all sorts of people were standing up and saying, this simply cannot be allowed. Uh, and you used in your uh, in your introduction there when you're talking about what we were going to talk about, you know, you, you raised the spectre of Stasi and what said this before. Mm. This, I, how on earth have we got in my lifetime, even just the last few years, to be contemplating that what people say in the privacy of their own homes is to be policed and prosecuted? You know, what, what has happened to the notion of your home being your castle? Yeah. There being some place where you can just be yourself, think your private thoughts, discuss things with your family, free from uh, censure, uh, free from prosecution, that we're contemplating getting into an idea. But how is it to be, how would it be policed? Right. Are we seriously considering encouraging members of a family to inform on the other members of that family mm. in the way that happened in East Germany with the Stasi, so that by the end of the regime, you know, one in four people in East Germany was a Stasi informer. You know, do, do families, do parents have to live in fear of their children? You know, do, does, does brother have to live in fear of sister? Mm. 
Well, what I mean, kind it's, of beast it's for a civilized society is that. Well, it's a small step from that as well to justification for, say, bugging people's homes and saying, well, if we have to wipe out this kind of thing, you know, it's a bit like Father Ted, you know, down with this kind of thing. Well, who says what this kind of thing is? Who defines it? I mean, I'm looking at a piece in the mail today, Roddy Dunlop, who you'll know uh, is the distinguished uh, Dean of the Faculty of Advocates in Edinburgh, saying, you know, do we really want to live in a world where saying all Scots are stingy is somehow a, a, a banned phrase? You can't say it. He says, is it threatening? No. Uh, is it insulting? Maybe, but do we want to criminalise that sort of thing? And who's going to decide? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's plenty of testimony that you read about in the, in the former Eastern Bloc. You know, mm. the people, you know, ripped the wires. You know, there were lines across people's walls where they had. You know, once they were once they were set free from the from that from that regime, they tore the wires out of the walls that yeah. had been there. That had been the the tracking, the the, the bugging mm. devices that had been there. And of course, now in the 21st century, you know, there's, there's plenty of technologies that you'd be free to speculate might be used against you yeah. in, in a world where what people discuss, what, what mums and dads discuss with children and what brothers and sisters discuss with one another, uh, you know, might become the, the substance for a case against them. Mm. Uh, and and who, who, once, once you say that if I have been offended, I've, I've been offended just by what you said, what you thought, or the books that you have on your bookshelves, yeah. It becomes hypothetically the case that if you've got a Bible in your house or on your bookshelves, that depending on another person's point of view, that could be a, a document that seemed to stir up hatred because yeah. of certain phrases and verses and chapters within. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's such an, uh, an open-ended, nebulous concept that you can go to the police and say, my feelings are hurt because that person has stirred up hatred mm. by thinking what he or she thinks. We'll never, we'll all be in the courts forever. Right. Well, I mean, this was, again, this was uh, illustrated very well and, and not to his advantage, I don't think, by this Democrat advisor who basically was demanding the right to do whatever he wished in response to hate. So that, therefore, uh, you can burn down Portland if you are angry enough, if you're hurt enough, if you're upset enough, because you're justified in your being upset because somebody has hated on you. I don't... I've never, I've been uh, a, a contrary figure over the years, and I completely, uh, I completely respect uh, the 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 right of other people to not agree with what I say. Yeah. And, and well, you know, let's imagine they don't agree with what they think I think. Uh, but likewise, there are many people whose whose thoughts and their and their virtually their every uh, their every spoken word, <laughs> you might say, it causes me upset or mm. offence. But I just accept it. Yeah, I just accept that that is normal. And I I'm I'm so I'm so dedicated now to the concept of uh, free speech and free expression that I would I would prefer. To, to go towards the side that says anyone can say absolutely anything. Yeah. If it was, if we were to be offered a choice between what is enshrined, potentially enshrined within a concept like the hate crime bill that's proposed for Scotland, and on the other end of the spectrum, freedom to say and use any words and to and to express any opinion, that's the side. That's the side I would take. Mm. I yes. would rather see that extreme end of the spectrum than the other. Yes. Because I can, I can take, I mean, spoken hatred, sticks and stones and all that, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones. But, but I, I, I refuse to contemplate living in a world where I would even think of taking someone to court because of something they said uh, that I thought was hateful. Mm. It's just not. It, 
we have we have protections you know we have we have laws about defamation we have laws about libel we have laws about slander and we have all for a long time learned that there are certain things that you know that, that we that we, if we do and say certain things that there will be consequences yes but ratchet that up to the point where you're saying that what someone says in the privacy of their own home should be the grounds for a case that you'd see them go to jail for seven years mm. then that is that's dystopian to me Oh, I think you're absolutely right. People do have a kind of confusion over free speech, though, because some people will say things to me like, well, you know, I thought you believed in free speech. Why uh, are you telling that person that what he's just said is libelous? And I'll say, well, free speech means you can say what you want. It doesn't mean that there isn't a consequence to what you say. But I guess the problem with that argument is that in the end, if in fact the government is going to limit what you can say by legislation, then that unfortunately leads down a very dark path indeed because where does that end well it, well it ends in what we've all seen what we've all seen in the past what has happened in totalitarian regimes in the past where the, any any group that seemed to be in the wrong as far as the state is concerned uh, you know can be victimized to the nth degree and if the, if the state uses the law to make opposition to its political stance uh, and any other anything else that's associated with that then you're basically just stamping down on opposition mm. it's you know it simply becomes the case if you've got a powerful you know one party state then the, the right to see anything against them would be could be interpreted by them or by their supporters as an attempt to stir up hatred and so for for everyone for most people the safest path is simply to say nothing yeah. That no matter what the ruling party or the ruling body says, you you just think no. I've just got to keep my head down because if I say that, I think that's a bad idea. That could be interpreted as stirring up hatred against the party, and I'll end up in jail. Mm. It's all all of it. It's not about. It's not about. Uh, well, it, in essence, it's about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. But it's it, ultimately when it's being from when it's top down from a government, it's about stamping on the, the mere possibility of opposition. Mm. And in, in a free society, you, you're obliged. It's not just a right uh, to challenge authority. You're, you're obliged to keep authority in check. You know, that's in the nature of checks and balances. Well, exactly right. And I've always questioned why politicians, and it always happens to politicians who start to think that they can never be voted out because they're so popular that everybody wants them there. And they then forget that they're actually elected by us to represent us. And they start pushing us around which is what's happening now with the pandemic, which is what's happening now with the restrictions and the lockdowns. I mean, as London and the rest of England goes into a lockdown tomorrow, I'm actually not even sure where you are in Scotland. I'm not sure whether you're still in one, whether you're coming out of one. Um, you know, what, 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 where are you vis-a-vis -vis where we're about to go? Well, we've got, we've got these... Um, we're about to embark on this, um, the five tiers, which, yeah. conveniently enough, are, are numbered from zero to four. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we, I live in Stirling, which is in Fourth Valley, which right. is which is the filling in the sandwich created by uh, Strathclyde and Glasgow on one side and, and, and Edinburgh on the other. Uh, they are, you know, they, that's the, the main centres of population. And, and although the, the cases, the numbers of cases of, of COVID that are here in, in Fourth Valley are quite low, because we are in that that filling in the sandwich between the two, we've been we've been lumped into this uh, this tier three. I think we're tier three. At the moment, in the old system, <laughs> in yeah, old right. money, yeah. but which, basically, which basically means I can't, we can't, I can't leave my, uh, I can't leave Fourth Valley or the, I can't leave my Tier Three area to go into a, 
a less infected zone. Everything's shut, the pubs are shut and all of that. We're in those, uh, we're in those restrictions. But I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to take what I've just said as gospel because like you, because it keeps on changing and because mm. I don't listen to the restrictions day by day, I, I could easily be out of step. But to, to go back to what, you're, what you were saying, what we were saying about the, the hate uh, crime bills that proposed here in Scotland and now what you're telling me is you're looking at it down in, uh, south of the border as well, it, it, it seems all part of a, a dangerous piece to me. Because when we look at America and the election at the moment, and ever since you know Hillary Clinton and our talk of a basket of deplorables, this migration that there has been, this evolution where it's been it's been deemed appropriate to hate, to hate the opposition, and to regard fellow citizens as the as the fifth column, the enemy within. You know, and both sides are doing it, and it's being it's certainly being pushed by by media. It's being encouraged. Certain things have been taken as the norm. All this talk, talk about, you know, shy Trumpers because, you know, even husbands aren't telling their wives and wives aren't telling their husbands that they're going to vote Trump because there has been, such a stigma has been attached, uh, you know, to that side of the, the campaign. It's, it's become that polarisation has definitely already crossed the line into the dangerous place where we're treating fellow citizens as the enemy. Now, whoever wins the, this, this election, whoever, if Trump ends up staying in the White House or if he's replaced by Biden, the country can't move because I've said it before, it's like a light aircraft with a, with a dead elephant strapped to one wing. It, it can't fly. It can't go anywhere because you've got this, you've got this sullen, angry, uh, disenfranchised, nearly half of your population that have been invited to regard themselves as the hated ones. And they'll be so disinclined, I would have thought, to, to put their shoulder to the wheel, you know, to try and affect any meaningful change. And it, it, it is exactly the same situation that we're increasingly in in the UK, mm. where people on, on one side of the argument hate and treat as mere criminals the, the people who hold the other point of view. And it, it's a, it creates a complete deadlock, a complete stasis. How can we get anything done mm. as countries if half of the population in every country hates the other half. I know. It's quite bizarre. It's quite ridiculous. And thank goodness that you and I can talk about it uh, at the moment because there's still no law against speaking out against it. Neil, as ever, thank you very much indeed. We're out of time, but we'll speak to you again same time next week. Neil Oliver uh, making an awful lot of sense, as ever. Uh, but even he uh, is a little bit confused about what tier he's in in Scotland, as I'm sure many of you will be as to what you can do come tomorrow. Talk radio across the UK online, on DAB and on your smart speaker The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say Mid-morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.